Hi, this is Nathan. Before we get to the episode, I want to invite you to join me on an incredible adventure this November of 2024. I am taking a small group of believers to Turkey, what the New Testament called Asia Minor, for a 12-day Bible study tour of the early church. We'll be studying the book of Acts and many of the epistles on location as we visit ancient cities like Ephesus, Laodicea, Heropolis, Antioch, Pergamum, and many more. If you are interested in joining me this November for a once-in-a-lifetime adventure as we study where much of the New Testament and early church took place, you can learn more by going to deeperchristian.com forward slash turkey. And if you're interested, don't delay. Spots are limited and on a first-come, first-served basis, and a $100 discount is available if you register before May 27th. I do hope you can join me. And again, more information is available at deeperchristian.com forward slash turkey. Now, here's the episode. Welcome to episode 28 of the Deeper Christian Podcast. This is the podcast to help you study God's word, know Jesus intimately, and discover how you can build your life around Jesus Christ. I'm Nathan Johnson, and today I want to discuss God's will for your life. Let's dive in. As many of you know, I've been studying the book of Ephesians for several years now. When I began, it was the book that I was walking through to learn how to study the Bible, and obviously, as I had opportunities to preach, it was where I would turn to to preach from. Now, almost to the humor of those around me, Ephesians has become my quote-unquote preaching book. And since I don't preach regularly, my study through Ephesians has gone, well, rather slow, thus taking several years. Now, in between studying for upcoming sermons, I study a variety of other topics and books. But studying and preaching from Ephesians has been an incredible blessing and joy in my life one that God has used to greatly challenge my personal faith. Now, a few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to preach a message on the will of God from Ephesians 5.17. Now, this episode is a bit long, since I wanted to share that message with you in its entirety. So, if you ever wanted to know what the will of God is for your life, well, this message will tell you. So, without further ado, let's join the service and discover the will of God for our lives. I've been working through a section in Ephesians 5 that uh, I guess at first glance I was just kind of going to kind of pass it by on a surface level, just kind of like, yeah, 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 that sounds good. Uh, But it's fascinating as I've been getting into the actual content of the passage itself, uh, God's just been really working on me personally, and I've been rather convicted. And I'd like to bring you in on that, uh, because I don't like to be the only one who's living in that reality. So uh, what I want to do is I want to begin reading, just want to begin this section Uh, We're going to land on verse 17, but I want to begin reading at verse 15 with you. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 17. Uh, Sorry, verse 15. Uh, This is what Paul says. He says, See then that you walk circumspectly, or carefully, not as fools, but as wise men, making the most of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Let me just read it one more time. See then that you walk circumspectly, or carefully, not as fools, but as wise men, making the most of the time because the days are evil. 
Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, we're going to be focusing on verse 17, but I kind of want to bring you through verses 15 and 16. Because what I found is the only way you can understand verse 17, which says, Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. The only way you're going to understand that is if you understand the flow of verses 15 and 16. So if you'll bear with me, I'm actually going to give you three different sermons this morning, and we're just going to walk on through. We'll still end on time. It'll be okay. Uh, verse 15, Paul says this, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as a fool, but as a wise man. He says, do you know how you and I are to live as Christians? We are to walk, and it's the idea of to live. Uh, you are to live circumspectly. Uh, you are to live carefully. Uh, you are to live with purpose. Uh, you are to live being aware of what's going on around you. And the illustration I've been using as I've been walking through this is, uh, imagine I take you up 100, or 100 feet in the air between two buildings. We tie a rope between two buildings, and I put a gun to your head and say, walk the rope. And you say, no, thank you. I says, no, 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 you have to walk the rope. Now, if you're being forced to walk this tightrope, how would you walk? Circumspectly. In other words, uh, you're going to be carefully putting one foot in front of the other saying, oh, dear Jesus, dear Jesus, dear Jesus. Why? Because you'll die if you don't. That you don't just haphazardly walk a tightrope. You don't just like wake up one morning and just say, oh, I'll walk a tightrope, and then put a blindfold on and just go, all right, I'll just go wherever I want. No, no, no. You, you walk with purpose. You walk carefully. Paul says that's what you're to do. That in the Christian life, the Christian life isn't casual. The Christian life isn't just, ah, just do whatever you want. The Christian life isn't like, well, I go to church on Sundays, but I live how I want to the rest of the week. See, that's not Christianity, folks. Well, what's Christianity? It is a life lived on purpose, in one direction. And I'm careful to keep my gaze in one spot so I don't fall to the right or to the left. Are you living like that? Now, Paul says... Don't live as a fool. And of course, if you're like me, I said, Paul, that's great, because I don't want to be one. And of course, you know, I mean, I look at people around me, and, uh, and I'm not saying I'm the wisest crayon in the box. I get that, but, or the sharpest one, I guess that'd be how the statement goes. <laughs> don't read into that. Uh, but, but hey, I mean, I know I'm not the smartest person, but I'm definitely not the dumbest. I mean, I get that. I mean, I, I look at other people and just go, oh, Jesus, thank you for not making me like them. I, 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 and you've said this too. You just haven't thought it through. You just, you know, and I, I don't want to be a fool. Have you ever seen a fool? They're just, they're an idiot. That's why we call them an idiot, because they're foolish. That makes sense to you? And I don't think anybody in this room woke up this morning and said, oh, if I could just be an idiot this morning, that'd be great. See, no one thinks that way. And what's interesting is if you're a fool, you don't realize half the time that you're a fool. And that began to challenge me because what if I am a fool and just don't realize it? Now, biblically, there are 517 references to fool, folly, foolish, that kind of stuff. And, you know, hey, we got time this morning. I'm going to read all of them to you. I, I actually, I won't do that. But what I want to do is I want to summarize. I, I, I went through every passage that I could find on foolish, folly, fool, that kind of stuff. And what began to happen was that there was a, 
a, a similarity, there became a tone, there became a, a repetitive understanding of what a fool is based on Scripture. And I summed it up in four ways, and I just want to give these to you rather quickly, because if you want to understand what a fool is, biblically, um, the, I think these four ways pretty much sum up everything. Now, there are obviously some side things that you can add on to this, but these are the four primary ways that I could find in Scripture that defined a fool. Now, don't just listen and say, oh, I'm glad I'm not a fool. Would you allow Jesus to say, are any of these in your life? And would you let him poke at you if, if so? So here are the four ways that we see foolishness in Scripture. Number one, fools live with a carelessness toward God or toward sin. And in other words, I take sin lightly. Um, I, I don't see sin as being that serious. Well, yeah, I, I screwed up. No big deal. It was, it was a mistake. That, that I, don't, I don't see sin as it truly is. Uh, one of the people who traveled with Hudson Taylor uh, said it this way. He said, you know, there, there are seven steps upward and seven steps downward. If you want to grow in your intimacy with Jesus, there are seven steps that just allow you to go intimate, more intimate, more intimate, more intimate with Jesus. He says the first step into having a greater relationship with Jesus is taking sin seriously. Do you know what the first step downward toward destruction is? Taking sin lightly. That's convicting. Uh, we understand that a fool not only just takes sin carelessly, but they, they just, they take God carelessly. You know, obviously there's the big, you know, famous passage that we always read on April 1st. You know, April Fool's Day, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. It's National Atheist Day. Hey, I, hey we get that. And uh, that was funny. Uh, but, but hey, you recognize that, that yeah, it, it's true. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. But we're not just talking about the atheist here. Do you realize that you can take God carelessly or very superficially and still believe in God? For example, I come to Scripture and Scripture says, Hey, you can walk in freedom and victory and triumph. And I go, Oh, isn't that amazing? But then I go and live unlike that. I go and do my own thing. And, well, do you believe the Bible? Well, sure, I believe the Bible. But are you living the Bible? Well, no, that's impossible. Do you know what that's actually doing? That's taking God carelessly. That yes, I may esteem him with my mind, and woo, yeah, there's a God, there's a God. I'm not an atheist. There's a God. That may be true. But you realize that if I'm not actually living this thing out, what I'm doing with my life is declaring that he is not God in my life. Does that make sense? In other words, I may speak it with my lips, but if I'm not living it with my life, then what my life is declaring is that there is no God in my life. Because God has said, hey, if I get in, get in the middle of your situation, if I get smack dab in the middle of your life, do you know what I'm going to do with you? I'm going to produce victory and triumph. You're going to have peace. You don't have to fear. Hey, you can have hope and joy. And, and if I'm not living that, do you recognize I am taking God casually? And my life is becoming a declaration saying that God is not God in my life. And biblically, I'm a fool. That just kicks you in the teeth, doesn't it? So, a fool, biblically, number one, takes God or sin carelessly. And number two, a fool lives for themselves. In other words, they're just totally self-inward focused. Biblically, do you realize that when you are consumed with yourself, do you recognize that, hey, when your whole life centers around you, uh, when you wake up in the morning and your first thought is, oh, what am I going to do? What am I going to eat? What am I going to wear? What am I going to, what, 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 what am I, what am I, what am I? Do you realize 
Biblically, that's a fool. That when you are self-centered, hey, when you are turned within, when your whole focus is yourself, when you're only concerned about is you and, and how, how what they do affects you, do you realize you are a fool, biblically? Number three, fools hate wisdom. They hate instruction, discipline, and correction. Do you know how hard it is to teach a fool? They don't want to listen. And they may sit through the services, and they may, hey, they may be... They may go and they nod their heads and they don't want to stand and they don't want to sit. But hey, they are not interested in any reality in their life. They're not interested in listening and really changing. See, you cannot correct a fool. Why? Because they don't want to be corrected. See, a wise person says, oh, there, there's so much more to learn. Oh, I, I need to be changed on the inward parts. Oh, could you, God, could you do something in my life? And, and yes, if I need to face correction and discipline, I'm willing to embrace it. Why? Because I know what, what God is going to use that in my life for. He's going to bring about his purpose. And, and oh, he's going to make me more into his image. And See, fools don't live that way, folks. They despise instruction. They despise correction. See, see a fool does not like to be corrected. They don't want to go through discipline. They don't want wisdom. They don't. Have you ever done that? And fourthly, fools may hear truth but they don't heed it or obey it. In other words, a great parable, Jesus says, oh, the wise man built his house upon a, a rock. The fool built his house upon sand. Isn't it fascinating that as you walk through that whole parable, the emphasis is, hey, the same situations, the same circumstances, but two totally different outcomes. See, the fool may hear truth, they may hear insight. They may hear whatever. But it doesn't actually change them. They nod their heads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Been there, heard that, done that. Got the t-shirt. I'm done. I'm fine. But see, a wise person doesn't just hear truth. It allows, they heed it. They obey it. They, they hear it and they say, oh, what must I do to be saved? They, they say, oh, God, what, 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 am I, what can I do with this in my life? And they actually obey what they've heard. Now, just in my own personal study, I got through that. I just said, God, the in conclusion for my life is I'm a fool. That, hey, I've done all that stuff. That, hey, I've sought my own desires. And, and hey, I have sought my own interest. And, and hey, I, yeah, I, I know the word and I know the great truths of the word, but am I really living it? And am I really obeying everything you're saying? Am I willing to be corrected? Am I willing to be disciplined? Am I willing... God, I'm a fool. Paul says, don't live as a fool. Hey, you are to walk circumspectly. There, there's, a, there's an avenue through which you are to walk on this tightrope. Don't be a fool and fall off. He says, hey, that should not define your life. If you call yourself a Christian, a Christian does not live like that. They're not foolish. Well, how are they to live? Oh, as wise. Don't you want to be wise? I have not met a single person who says, I don't want to be wise. Everyone wants wisdom. But here's what's fascinating. When you get into this idea of wisdom, scripturally, it's not just intellectualism. It's not just a whole bunch of facts and information. It's not just a bunch of, well, I've read the books, I, I passed the test kind of wisdom. See, wisdom, biblically, is not just information. It's taking the information and applying it into your daily life. It's, it's the actionable side of the knowledge. 
Does that make sense? In other words, knowledge is information. Hey, you can have a lot of knowledge and you cannot have wisdom. But wisdom is taking the knowledge and actually applying it, putting it into practice. And again, as, as you begin to study out wisdom biblically, and there's a whole bunch of these throughout Scripture, but what you begin to find is that you can summarize wisdom in three ideas. And again, this is just context to bring it up to where we're heading. But let me just give them to you really quick. If you're really gaining wisdom, if you're really truly holding wisdom, it's going to affect you. How's it going to affect you? Number one, it affects your thinking. Number two, it affects your, your talking, your discourse. And number three, it affects your living, your actions. Do you realize that if you truly embrace wisdom, biblically, that it's not some intellectual thing in your head, that it's actually going to affect how you think, it's going to affect how you talk, and it's going to affect how you live. In other words, wisdom changes you. Isn't that exciting? Paul says, live in wisdom. And you'll never guess what he's talking about. I'll bet you if I give you three guesses and says, what do you think the wisdom is here in the passage? You wouldn't be able to guess it. So I'll just tell you. The wisdom that he's talking about is not some facts. It's a person. And his name is Jesus. And when you get into the context of this thing, what Paul is telling you is, hey, uh, Solomon said this in the Proverbs. Hey, go after wisdom. And it's a person in the book of Proverbs. In fact, in my, in my translation, wisdom is capitalized. It's a person. It's a pronoun. Did you know that one of the names of Jesus is wisdom? Because he is wisdom. And what Paul is saying here in the passage is, hey, don't, hey, don't live inward. Hey, hey, don't live as a fool. Hey, hey, don't just do whatever you think is right. Hey, don't just live carelessly. Hey, what am I to do? I'm, I'm to find my life smack dab in the middle of Jesus who becomes my wisdom in every situation. Isn't that awesome? In other words, go after Jesus and you'll get wisdom. And why wouldn't you want to live in that? Now bring all that in and look at verse 17. So Paul's making an argument. He's walking through saying, hey, walk circumspectly. Don't live as a fool. Live as a wise man. Then he gets into verse 17. Look at this. Therefore. Now, of course, as a good Bible student, you know that every time you see the word therefore, you're asking the therefore, what's the therefore? Therefore. And you realize that the therefore, what it's doing is it's going back and drawing you back in. It's going back to what he just said, saying, let me give you a summary. He's going back saying, oh, let me give you some clarification. He's going back saying, whoo, I have some more information for you. And that's what it's doing. Now he says, therefore, do not be unwise. And you could say, Paul, you just said that. Paul, you just said, don't live as a fool. So why do you feel necessary then to say, don't be unwise? Here's what's phenomenal about this. The word therefore unwise in the Greek is a different word for foolish. And the emphasis here for this word for foolish, it's a totally different word, but this word for foolish has the idea, yes it, has, I mean, yes it means foolish, but there's an undercurrent, there's an emphasis in this particular word that has the idea of being casual, of being indifferent, and being careless. In other words, it's not just, well, yes, I'm a fool, I don't know anything, the idea is that, yes, I'm foolish, but it's partly as a result of me being careless, indifferent, or casual. That's interesting to me. See, I've come to realize that Christianity 
is not a casual thing. See, I, I've come to realize that Christianity is not being indifferent. See, Christianity is not being careless. That there is an intensity, uh, there, there's a one, one focus, uh, there's one driving passion kind of a thing in Christianity. And you know what that is. Yeah, it's a person. His name is Jesus. And Christianity is never about being indifferent. Christianity is never about being casual. Christianity is not casual. Now, you can dress casual, but you don't live casual. <laughs> yeah, amen. Yeah, I'm changing the shorts this afternoon, too. I'm, I'm going to be casual. But I'm not going to live casual. Why? Because that's not Christianity. Now, it's interesting. He says, do not be unwise. The word there for be, to be, it's really neat in the Greek. There's, there's several different words for to be. This one in particular has the idea of not being something and becoming something. In other words, it's not that I was born this way. Well, yeah, I've always been unwise. You know, my dad dropped me on the head twice when I was a kid. Yep, that was, that's his fault. See, it's not that idea. See, unwise here is, okay, it's something that I'm growing into, that I'm becoming something, that, I, that, it's, that it's starting to develop within me. And Paul says, hey, don't let this carelessness, hey, don't let this casualness, hey, don't let this indifference begin to grow up in your life. Well, then what am I supposed to do? Oh, get this. He says, but understand what the will of the Lord is. That I am to understand, which has this idea of comprehension. That, that should make sense. That you're to understand, like, oh, I'm to grab it in my mind. But it's not just a grabbing in your mind. When you, when you walk through this word in Scripture, it's found 26 times. And, and the, the emphasis is not just, oh, I get it mentally. It's I get it, but affects how I live. So I'm to understand the will of the Lord. Not just like, all right, we're going to have a discourse called the will of the Lord. And when you leave here, you will understand the will of the Lord. That's not that idea. Because you recognize that we have a lot of, we, we can have a lot in our heads but if it doesn't affect how we live, then it's rather pointless. Some of the dumbest people I've ever met have PhDs. It's true. Why? Because they have a lot up here, but it hasn't affected how they live. See, I'm not interested in a Christianity like that. See, I'm not interested in knowing that 2 plus 2 equals Jesus kind of answers. And, and yes, I want to know the Word so that, I mean, yeah, academically, I want to get into the Word. I understand that. But the reason I get into the Word, the reason I know, hey, it's not just, wouldn't it be interesting if you could understand the will of the Lord, not just intellectually, but in the midst of understanding, it would come and it would actually change how you lived. Paul says, that's what I want for you. It's not just mental assent. Oh, yeah, that sounds great. Ooh. But somehow, as you embrace the understanding of it, it changes your actions. It changes how you live. Paul says, I want you to understand the will of the Lord that way. So I just want to talk about the will of the Lord. You recognize that our culture is obsessed at some level with knowing the will of the Lord. I cannot tell you how many conversations I've been in when someone said, oh, I am just, I just desperately need to know the will of God in my life. Have you ever said that? It seems like at some level we've like, you know, in the church, it's like we've hidden the will of the Lord. 
you know, we've like packaged it up, we boxed it up, we hid it in this corner, and everyone's looking for it. Like, I, I need to know the will of the Lord. Because otherwise, what do I, what if I'm outside the will of the Lord? And uh, what, if, what if it, what, what if he flicks me into the abyss because I didn't follow the will of the Lord? And do you, I mean, it's just, you start hearing that in the church today. It's really bizarre. And everyone's talking about, I need to find the will of the Lord, as if it's lost. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, you know, God, God, you know, he's mysterious, and, and he's up in heaven somewhere, and, and, and he's, you know, he, he likes to hide things. <laughs> seek me and find me. He loves hide and seek, obviously. <laughs> so I mean, he's probably taking his will, and he has a determined purpose. I get that. God has a will. I get that. God has a plan. Woo! Does he ever have a plan? But what is it? And, and it's like we're, we're seeking. Have you ever met a graduate who's getting done with high school or college or something, Ellerslie? You know, and, <laughs> and, and, you, and you go up to them and you say, Woo! What is God calling you into? And they go, I have no idea, but I'm searching for it. I'm looking for God's will in my life. Why do we say that stuff? Because it doesn't make any sense to me. It never has made any sense to me. As if, as if the, the will of the Lord has some... And if you, if you can find it, if you can grab a hold of it, you better hold tight because it's like jello. It just slides through and you'll never have it again. And that's not true, folks. Uh, when I was getting done with seminary, it was, just, ah, it just, it was just hilarious to me. For about, I don't know, six months leading up to graduation, and, you know, this happens at the end of high school. This happens at the end of college. Everyone asks you the same dumb questions. And they are. They're dumb. You know, questions like, um, oh, what are you going to do? Where are you going? What's the plan? What's God calling you to? What's the ministry? What? And I figured, oh, man, I just got so sick of those. And I've told this to some of you, but I wanted to make a T-shirt that just said, yep, nope, no idea, quit asking. Because it's just like, you know, like, every question they had, I could just go. <laughs> and just be done. You know, because. And, and I had all these people say, Nathan, oh, what's the calling of God upon your life? Now, I fully admit, hey, I'm, hey I'll be the first to admit, God calls people. And, but, hey, I'll be the first to admit, God has a will, folks. God has a determined purpose. God has a plan. God is doing something in this world. Praise God. That it's not just happen chance and he's standing back going, oh no, <laughs> what am I going to do? That God, God, is, God has an overwhelming purpose and plan that he is orchestrating all this stuff for his purpose. Do you know how phenomenal that is? He's even taking the works of the enemy and all the junk of your life and he's utilizing, it's not that he caused it. Okay, hey, he's not, he doesn't cause sin, folks. He doesn't cause destruction, but he's using the destruction that the enemy has done to bring about an overwhelming purpose in your life, which is why Paul in Romans 8, 28 can declare even the junk he can use. Isn't that an awesome thought? Why? He has a plan, and I have no doubt that he has a calling. And yes, I fully believe God calls people. He calls people to the mission field. He calls people to the pastor. He calls people to be teachers. He calls people to be electricians. He calls people to be circus clowns. I get it. God has a calling. I have no problem with that. But what's interesting is when you come into Scripture, that is downplayed. It's not that he doesn't have it. He does have that, and I have no problem with that. And if you have a calling like that, whew, embrace it. 
And it's not that, yeah, he does call like that, but the emphasis in Scripture is there is a calling, but it's not individual like that. So here I was, I was getting done with seminary, and everyone's asking me these dumb questions. Hey, uh, what's the calling on your life? And hey, I had friends who, were, who would respond and say, well, I'm called to be a missionary. Not just a missionary. I'm called to be a missionary in this country to this people group, and I'm learning this language for that purpose. Praise the Lord. And I had another, you know, I had another friend who was like, yeah, I'm called to be a pastorate in this city and this, you know, in this church, and, and wow, God's calling me there. I'm like, wow, wouldn't that be amazing? Wow, I wish I had one of those. And they say, Nathan, what's your calling? And as a joke, I just, I began at first, I just said, you know what my calling is? They're like, yeah, what's your calling? I said, Jesus. And of course, every response was like, <laughs> yeah, 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 I get that. But what's your calling? And it dawned on me, I said, no, no, no. I'm thinking this through. My calling is Jesus. It's a really interesting thought, isn't it? And, and again, I'm not downplaying individual calling. Hey, God can call you like that. I have no problem with that. But it seems to me that as I walk through the scriptures, the overwhelming calling on someone's life is not so much profession as it is a person. Does this make any sense? And the more I thought through this, the more I loved that answer. In fact, for the, la for the last six months of seminary, people would walk up to me and they're like, hey, so what's your... I'm like, Jesus. They're like, yeah, 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 but, but what are you going to do? And I said, it doesn't matter. I said, think about this. And I know this is twisted maybe, but... I said, but you're, you, hey, you're called to the pastorate. And uh, hey, you're, you're going to be in this church and you're going to preach. Yeah, preach. Plus God, preach. Nothing wrong with that. But see, what happens 40 years from now and, and you happen to get cancer of the throat and, and you can't preach anymore? What does that say about your calling? Well, I'm called to be a singer. Bless God, I can sing. This is an illustration. It's not true. <laughs> but see, what happens when you, when you can't sing anymore? What, what does that say about your calling? Isn't it a fascinating thought? If my calling is singular, a person, hey, he can change my profession all he wants to, but my calling doesn't change. Hey, 40 years from now, I can get cancer of the throat, but folks, that doesn't affect my calling. Why? Because he is my calling. He's what I'm living for. I don't live for preaching. Bob Gazaway might live for preaching, <laughs> but I don't live for preaching. Hey, I enjoy preaching, but hey, that's not... Hey, what I want to be is I want to be smack dab in the middle of my calling, which is a person. Bob wants that too, by the way, just thought of clarifying. <laughs> Wouldn't it be interesting if God's will wasn't some... What if it was a person... And God's overwhelming plan for your life is not, well, you're to live like this. What if the overwhelming plan for your life is a person who will cause you to live like this? See, I approach this passage with the, all right, I'm excited. I'm, I'm going to get in the passage. Why? Because I'm going to figure out God's plan, his will. I'm excited. And I was confronted because 
I can't, I can't force that in the context. Because as I get into the passage, do you know what the passage is all about? Person. In fact, I want to prove this to you. I want to walk you through Ephesians really quick. Um, Ephesians uses the will of God several times. So just turn back a page. Look at the Ephesians 1.1. 1, 1. So I just, I just want to look at these, just these few places in Ephesians where it talks about the will of God. And just, I just want you to see the tone of what Paul is saying here. Ephesians 1.1, 1, 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. Well, right there, Nathan, you see God had a plan. It was to, for him to be an apostle. I get that. I'm not downplaying that. Hey, and I have no problem with that. I get that. But do you realize that when you get into the passage, the emphasis of the passage is, is the position that Paul has in relationship to Jesus. And the emphasis is not on Paul. The emphasis is on Jesus and the outflow of Jesus in and through the life of Paul. Uh, you, you come down to verse 9, and Paul says, he, he, he's saying that, uh, speaking of Jesus, he's making known to us the mystery of his will. See, it's mysterious. There's a mystery of the will, but he tells you what that is. He says, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, which are in heaven and on earth. Do you realize, as you get into the passage, it's saying, everything finds its fulfillment in Jesus. And I, and I walked to the students for this idea, but it's, it's like there's this funnel, and everything is going in the funnel, and everything is finding its fulfillment, its purpose, its climax, and one single thing. Do you know what that is? Jesus. And he says, hey, there's this mystery of the will. And if you turn over a page to chapter 3, Paul tells you what that mystery is. He says in verse 3, how by the revelation he made known to me the mystery. <gasps> Paul learned the mystery. Well, what's the mystery? He says that I've written briefly already. Look at verse 6. How the Gentiles, that's you and I, are fellow heirs and fellow members and partakers of what? The promise in Christ by the gospel. Do you know what the mystery is that he's talking about? The mystery of his will? That you get to be in Jesus. That's a phenomenal mystery, isn't it? In fact, Paul even says that in Colossians 1.27, he says, To them God would make known what is the glorious riches of this mystery among the nations, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. I go down to verse 11 of chapter 1. Paul says in Ephesians 1.11, In him we've received an inheritance. Isn't that awesome? you've received an inheritance predetermined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. <gasps> he has a will! But what is that will? That we who first trusted in Christ should live for the praise of his glory. Do you realize that whole thing is wrapped up in Jesus? That you would live unto his praise and unto his glory and unto his... And yes, that may be a profession, but it seems bigger than that. That it's all, it's all about this person thing. Uh, go down to, oh, let me just give you a few other passages in Scripture. Uh, listen to this, Colossians 1, 9, and 10. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard of it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you would walk worthy of the Lord, 
fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. What is he talking about? That this life that's worthy, that's walking worthy, it's allowing, hey, you get in Jesus and allow him to produce his life in you stuff. Listen to this. 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Well, that seems pretty plain, doesn't it? What's the will of God in your life? Your sanctification, which is what? Becoming more like Jesus. That he's shaping you and forming you and he's drawing you in and he's, he's causing you to, to act like him and think like him and talk like him and he's, he's molding you after his likeness. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. 1 Peter 2, 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. 1 John 2, 17. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Do you get the tone of all that stuff? Yeah, there's actions involved. Hey, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Do good. But you realize even the fullness of those you cannot produce outside of him. That he is the fullness of joy. How are you going to pray without ceasing? You have to be in Jesus. And Jesus has to get inside of you. How are you going to do good? Well, I'll muster up my own strength and pull it off. No, you can't. I, I love this, the first John 2, 17 one. He who does the will of God abides forever. As if I can somehow, if I just discover his will and do it, I get to live forever outside of Jesus. What are you talking about? There is only one means of salvation. It's Jesus. And it's your faith in his work. How will you abide forever? John 17, 3. Oh, embrace him. That they might know you, the one true God. Hey, what's eternal life? Embracing Jesus. Do you realize, as you get into this idea of the will, you cannot separate the will of God from the person of Jesus. In fact, as you work through the entirety of the scriptures, do you recognize that God's overwhelming purpose and plan from the garden to his second coming is one single thing. It's Jesus and his fullness in your life. Is that yeah, you would be saved and he would begin to change you and mold you and transform you and shape you like himself. Why? Because it's all about Jesus. Hey, everything in Scripture, we've said this so many times, everything in Scripture is pointing you one direction. What is that? Jesus. Why? Because that's God's overwhelming plan. That's his desire. That's his consumption. In fact, John chapter 16, the Holy Spirit, do you know what he's doing? He's guiding you into all truth, which is a person. And he's really lifting up and glorifying one single thing. What is that? It's a person, Jesus. It's just like God is obsessed with Jesus, which is himself. I get that. And he wants to do that in you. Now, that shouldn't come to a surprise in Ephesians because that's what he's been doing this entire book. R really quickly, if you'll bear with me here, turn back to chapter 1 again of Ephesians. Just listen to this. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 through 4, sorry, verse 3 through 14. It's all about blessings. You are blessed. Yeah, and he lists a whole bunch of blessings that you have. Guess what? 
every single blessing finds its fulfillment in Jesus. And get this, God does not give you things outside of Jesus. He gives you one single thing, Jesus, which becomes your everything. And hey, I've walked through this many times, but just for the sake of repeat, see, God is not the store clerk. See, I, I don't go up to God, bang on his door and say, God, I really need some peace. He goes, oh, I have what you need. And he runs to the back room. He gets this jar called peace. He puts it on the counter, hands me a pill called peace. I pop the pill. Oh, 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 oh peace. Oh, praise the Lord. And then I leave. Because you know the problem is, the moment I get out the door, oh, it wasn't peace that I needed at all. And I run back in. God, I really need some joy. Oh, could you give me some joy? God goes, I got what you need. He goes in the back room, grabs this jar called joy, pops on the counter, gives me a pill, pop it in my mouth. Woo! I got joy. Woo! Isn't this amazing? I run out the door with a skip of my step. And I realize, oh, it wasn't joy that I needed at all. I run back in. God, I need patience. Patience. Right now, I need patience. Now, I need patience. And God goes, oh, don't worry. Hold on, whore. Just give, give me a second. I got what you need. He goes, gets this jar. See, God doesn't do that, folks. Hey, every single thing that God has for you is found in one place. See, I run up to God. God, I need peace. Do you know what he gives me? He doesn't give me peace. He gives me Jesus, who becomes my peace. Why? Because he is the Prince of Peace. And the amazing thing about that reality, you realize is, if I really needed joy, but he still gives me Jesus, I not only have the peace, but I have the joy too. Because at his right hand is the fullness of joy, Psalm 16. And he's my patience, and he's my kindness, and my goodness, my faithfulness, my gentleness, and self-control. He's my love. He's my, he's my everything, folks. That, hey, when you get into the blessings of God, you go, oh, I'm blessed. Yes, you are. But you need to recognize that God doesn't give you things apart from Jesus. He gives you Jesus, which becomes everything you need. You need one single thing for life and godliness. What is that? Jesus. Now, as you, as you move into the end of chapter 1, Paul is praying a prayer. And do you know what his whole prayer is about? Be consumed with Jesus. That's what the whole prayer is about. How you move into chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And he's saying, wow, hey, here you are. You're, you're, you're polluted. You look just like the world. You're full of corruption. What are you going to do? You can't do anything. In fact, you are dead spiritually. But, oh, the overwhelming power of God has reached into your life and yanked you from deadness into life. And all your salvation and all your hope and your whole position is found in one single place. What is that? Jesus. And you move into the end of chapter 2, and he's talking about the fact that the Jews and the Gentiles are united and that there is now peace where there's been no peace. Well, how is that taking place? One single thing. Jesus has become our peace, is what he says. You come to chapter 3, and chapter 3, verse 1 through 13, God, or Paul is talking about the eternal purpose of God. And what is the eternal purpose of God? Oh, that the, hey, the Gentiles and the Jews might find position, salvation, and life in one single place. What is that? Jesus. You come into the second half of chapter 3, he's praying his second prayer. Guess what his second prayer is all about? Hey, would you just get wrapped up in Jesus? Hey, would you, would you take your whole life and just aggressively go after Jesus? Doesn't it sound like he's just saying one thing? You come to chapter 4, he says, hey, there's to be unity in the body. Yeah, the body. The local body, the large body, the church. That there is unity. Do you know where that comes from? One single place, says Paul. 
It's only found in Jesus. As you come to verse 14, down to the end of the chapter, Paul is talking about the clothing that you were to wear. He says, take off your former way of life, put on this new clothing. Do you know what the new clothing is? Yeah, it's a person. His name's Jesus. And hey, why is it that I don't lie? Why is it that I don't steal? Why is it that I don't get angry? Why is it that, that I have this? Because he has come and infiltrated my life, and I can't be the same person anymore. See, it's all focused on Jesus. As you move into chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, Paul goes, hey, you are to walk and live in love. But love's not an emotion, folks. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 and 16. God is love. He's talking about a person. How am I to walk? In Jesus. And the nature of Jesus, which is expressed by this holy love, is going to infiltrate your life, and you won't be able to talk, act, or think the same way anymore. Why? Because that love is so consuming, it will change you. But where is that found? One single place. His name's Jesus. Uh, you move into uh, verse 9, sorry, verse 8, and down to verse 14. Paul says, hey, quit walking in darkness. Hey, quit living like the rest of the world. How are you to live? In the light. But you know what you find out? He is that light. And the whole position that I have in the kingdom of God is not, whoo, I'm doing really well on myself. This is me finding my sole position in him. It's one single thing, folks. It's a person. His name is Jesus. I mean, even look at our passage, verse 15 and 16. Hey, don't live like an idiot. Hey, don't live self-centered. Don't live like the fool. Hey, don't turn within. How am I to live? In wisdom, which is not some abstract concept. It's a person. His name is Jesus. In fact, go beyond verse 17. Look at verse 18. Hey, don't be drunk with wine, but how am I to live? Filled with the Spirit, which is the Spirit of Jesus, folks. Now, you look at that and say, Paul, you could have written one verse and skipped the whole six chapters of Ephesians. You're right. I'm glad he didn't, but he could have. Why? Because Paul's overwhelming message in the book of Ephesians is one single thing. You'll never guess what it is. Jesus. Would you get wrapped up in him? Would you just see him? Hey, would you just let him consume you? Hey, would you let him just be the big deal of your life? Hey would, you let, would you, hey, would you experience his blessing? But it's not something he's going to give you because he's just going to give you himself. Hey, would you experience life? But it's not just something he's going to give you because he is life itself. Hey would, you get, hey, would you put this clothing on? But it's not just a garment, it's a person. See, Paul is saying it over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. It's Jesus, 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 Jesus. So it shouldn't be a surprise to you then, in verse 17... If he says, therefore, let me just summarize this for you. Therefore, Paul says, don't be careless. Hey, don't be indifferent. Hey, don't be just superficial. Hey, don't just be, yeah, whatever. Hey, you are to embrace. You are to grasp. You are to understand, but not just mentally understand. It is to really work itself down in you where it's affecting how you live your life. Well, what am I to know? What am I to understand? The will of the Lord. Well, what is that? It's a person, folks. And yes, God may have a plan for your life. Hey, I have no doubt for that. Yes, he may call you. I have no problem with that. But you realize that what he's talking about here is, would you get wrapped up in Jesus? 
Hey, don't be careless about this one thing. Hey, don't be indifferent about this one thing. Well, what's this one thing? God's overwhelming plan since the garden was focused on one single thing. It's Jesus. The scripture is focused on one single thing. Jesus. Hey, would you get focused on one single thing? Jesus. Are you focused like that? Well, I've got a lot of, you know, responsibilities. Fine. Well, I've got three jobs. Good for you. Well, I've got lots of kids. Bless the Lord. Hey, I've got... Fine. But are you focused? Are you obsessed? Are you just dead set on one single thing? Jesus. That seems to be a big deal in the scriptures, folks. Peter says it this way. His divine power. This is 2 Peter 1.3. His divine power, speaking about Jesus, has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Do you realize that all that you need for life and for godliness is found in one place? It's Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I can't think of much that I need outside of life or godliness. In fact, I'm fairly confident that if there, I did find something outside of life and godliness, I probably don't need it. Because it's not going to be Jesus. Wouldn't it be fascinating if rather than going after some mystical, ooh, it's the will of the Lord for my life, what if I would go after Jesus and in so doing, in, in the embrace of Jesus, I would discover what he's wanting to do in and through my life? Does that make any sense? Hey, I'm not downplaying the calling idea. But you ask, you ask me, Nathan, where are you going to be in 10 years? <laughs> Probably dead, but I have no idea. I don't. I have no idea. It's really funny. Being at Ellerslie, I've, I've got, you know, the new students are always, well, how'd you get to Ellerslie? Like, what, what, how did you scheme and manipulate to get in? You know, like, I, obviously, they just don't let normal people in, and you're not normal, so how did you get here? And I, and I, I get that question. That makes sense. And I look at them and I say, well, let me tell you. Fifteen years ago, I said, all right. Eric hasn't told anybody, but he has a dream for his school. So I'm going to manipulate and figure out a way to meet Eric, and, and I'm going to like somehow sneak in, and I'm going to not let him you know, get rid of me. I'm just going to stick next to him. I'm just going to, like, don't get rid of me. Don't, I'll do anything you want. And, and then finally we're going to start a school, and he'll be stuck with me. <laughs> Folks, that's impossible. How, did you, how, how do you scheme this kind of stuff? I don't know how far you want to push this, but... And I, I can't prove this. So again, it's probably just speculation, but there seems to be evidence that there was a tradition with a high priest on the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament. And uh, the high priest, of course, is the, you know, the, the big shot, the religious leader of the day. And of course, he would go through the cleansing rituals, and then he would, he would take the blood, and he would march into the Holy of Holies one day a year to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. And of course, the, the old tradition was that they would tie a rope around his ankle with a bell because, you know, if he falls down dead in the presence of God, no one's going to go in after him. So let's just drag him out. Now, whether or not that's true, we don't know, because, you know, the rope would have to be pure, and, you know, is that, is that truly proper? I mean, there's a lot of questions about that. But one of those other traditions that I just think is fascinating is that there seems to be some evidence, probably speculation, but there seems to be some evidence that when the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies, he would always enter in backwards. Now, I don't know if that's true, 
probably speculation, but there are some scholars who suggest that's probably, that's probably what took place. And the idea was is that if I would just brashly walk into the Holy of Holies, it was a sign of pride and arrogance. And so as, as the high priest, what I would do is if, if the Holy of Holies was here, um, I would be walking backwards in humility and just saying, God, I'm unworthy. And Now, whether or not that's true, I don't, hey, I don't know. But I have used that illustration in my life so many times, talking about God's plan for my life. Now, I, hey, I get it. There are some people who are called, hey, I'm called to be a missionary. Hey, embrace that. Run with that. Go do it. But if you said, Nathan, what is God doing? Hey, what, what's your calling in your life? I don't know, folks. It's Jesus. Well, what's he going to have you do? I don't know. I don't. Now, when I was in high school, I, I, was, I was, hey, I, I had my five-year, 10-year, 20-year, 50-year plan figured out. Had all the steps. How I'm going to get there. And all. Do you realize I am not at all aware my, my plan was? And had I worked my plan, I would not be here. And in college, God just got a hold of my life and says, will you give me your plan? God, don't touch my plan. It's my plan. God says, will you trust me? Well, fine. If you want to take it from me, take it. And I finally came to the point where I just said, whatever. You can have it all. I surrender. And what it's felt like for me, may not be for you, but what it's felt like for me is that I am backing up into the plan of God. And it's the best illustration I know of. And you could say, well, Nathan, where are you going? I don't know, that way. That's the best that I know. Now, I can see some things on my peripherals, and I can make some good guesses. Well, it seems like we're going in this kind of a direction, and, and it seems like God's doing this. But you realize, I just, I trust. I pick up my foot, I put it backwards, and he plants it where it needs to be. And he is turning, and he is guiding, and he is moving, and he is. What's so phenomenal about that is all I see is what's behind me. And I'm seeing how he is weaving my past. I'm seeing how he's weaving my problems. I'm seeing how he's weaving my education. I'm seeing how he's weaving you into where I'm at. Hey, I couldn't have planned this. Hey, I'm not that good of a strategist. And yet God is doing something. Yes, he has a plan. But he's weaving and moving. But where is that found? It's in a person. And you recognize if I would go after a plan, there's a chance that I would miss Jesus. But if I would go after Jesus, in the midst of going after Jesus, he will fulfill, fulfill his plan. So why would I get lost in the plan or in a wheel when I can get lost in the person who will fulfill all of his dreams and desires and purposes in my life if I would just go and embrace a person? Does that make any sense? And hey, if you have a calling, that's phenomenal. Hey, if you know, hey, hey, that's great. But why don't you go after the person? Because you realize your profession may change, but your calling doesn't change. Hey, your, 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 what you may be doing this year versus next year may change. Hey, but that doesn't change his purpose and plan for your life. Why? Because his purpose and plan is that you will be more and more shaped and formed into his likeness. That he is wanting to sanctify your life, and he's wanting to like take the junk of you and like shave all that off so you'll look like Jesus. Do you know what God's plan for your life is? It's a person. And what if, in the midst of going after the person, and as I get all wrapped up in the person, God would begin to reveal all that he is wanting to do in and through my life? But what if I wouldn't get lost even in that? What if I would get lost in the person and just surrender my life, and I just become the vessel through which he flows his life and his love and his plan and his purpose into my world? 
don't know what that's going to look like. But would I trust him enough to do whatever he wants? Let me give you four quick handles or four quick ideas of potentially how you could apply all this. Number one, would you go after Jesus? Is he truly your obsession? Is he your focus? Is he your delight? Is he, is he, hey, is he the big deal of your life? Because, hey, I am, I am convinced the overwhelming desire and passion of God throughout history has been a person named Jesus. Hey, what was he doing all throughout the Old Testament? He was showcasing Jesus. Hey, what was he doing in the New Testament? He was lifting high Jesus. What does he want to do in your life today? Jesus. And he wants to take the mind of Christ, the heart of Christ, the attitude of Christ, the lifestyle of Christ, and form that in you. We call that sanctification. Would you let him do that in you? And would you let him give you a burning, passionate drive for one single thing? It's a person. And would you get all wrapped up in him? Because you realize if you would get wrapped up in him, it's not a duty to do stuff. It's, it's not an obligation to obey. See, I've never met someone who's engaged. And you look at him and say, hey, you start a conversation. It's just like, hey, would you, would you do me a favor and quit talking about that person for just a second? See, I've never met a person who's, who's about to get married who hasn't just been obsessed talking about just that's, that's all they focus on. It's one single thing. It's a person. Why? Because they're about to get married. And hey, that's a good thing. But see, it's not a chore to think about them. It's not a chore to spend time with them. It's not a chore to... It's, see, it's not... Why? Because they're just wrapped up in intimacy. Would you get that way with Jesus? Where it's not a chore, this is not a have to, this is not a bend your arm behind your back kind of stuff. This is, hey, would you just get smack dab in the middle of him? Hey, would you get all obsessed? Because in doing so, it's, you're in this love relationship, folks. That Hey, this isn't a duty. This isn't a have to. This is a... I get to. And you want to talk about him, and you want to spend time with him, and you want to think about him, and you want to, why? Because you're just, it's relational, folks. So, hey, would you go after him? The corollary of that, number two, is that this is not a nine-to-five thing. Hey, when we're talking about the will of God in your life, which I'm saying is the person, do you realize that's not will? That, that's a weekend thing. You, you can do whatever you want Monday through Friday, but Saturday and Sunday, that's the will of the God time. See, that doesn't make any sense. See, this is all the time, every moment of every single day, from this point forward, you have one single desire. You have one single passion. What is it? Jesus. Do you have that? The third idea is, if I'm truly going to live in the midst of the will of God for my life, do you realize that I have to live a life of surrender? See, what would it look like for me just to have a constancy of just that I'm not dictating what I'm doing, and I'm not deciding where I'm going, but I'm constantly living in response to the Spirit of God in my life, that He is just directing me and forming me and shaping me and pushing me exactly where He wants me to go, that I'm picking up my foot and I'm placing it behind me and I'm allowing Him to plant it where He wants me to go. And when I surrender myself to Him, when I trust Him enough to say, God, whatever you want, hey, you can spill and spend my life in any manner you want. Hey, hey, I'm not going to dictate the terms. Hey, I'm not going to choose. I'm not going to decide. You do what you want. Do you realize 
we're about we're going to celebrate communion here in a few minutes. Do you realize that's what communion is? It's a fresh declaration to say, God, my life is not my own. You can have it. Do whatever you want with it. Here's my body. Here's my blood. Spill and spin it as you choose. Would you live that way all the time? And would you just get all wrapped up in the will of God for your life, which is a person? And would you surrender yourself and embrace him? And in so doing, would you let him do whatever he's going to do in your life to bring about him and showcase himself through you to the world? And lastly, just a side encouragement, would you get into the word? Because you recognize if, if his plan is to showcase Jesus in and through your life, you need to get to know him. You need to know his heart. You need to get to know his mind. You, get, you need to get to know his attitude. You need to know what he's forming and shaping in you. Do you know what this whole book is drenched in? It's a person. And the word of text is showcasing the word of flesh. The word in person. And Jesus is this thing with, Jesus clothed himself with this. He's flesh. This was made flesh. It's Jesus, folks. Get to know him. Paul says this. Don't be unwise. Don't be foolish. Don't be careless. Don't be indifferent. Hey, hey don't just be casual about this thing. But would you grasp and let it affect every element of your life, one thing, the will of God in your life? And yes, you may have a calling, but, but the emphasis here is, oh, would you go after a person? Would you embrace him and let him do whatever he wants in and through your life? Pray with me. Jesus, Jesus, if I was to be honest, it seems like most of my life has been spent focused on myself. That I consumed, I've been consumed with my needs. I've been consumed about how things affect me. I've been consumed about, but Lord, that's foolish living. Lord, I've been so casual. I've been so indifferent. I've been so relaxed at times. Lord, what would it look like if your overwhelming passion and desire, which has been centered on Jesus, what, what would happen, Jesus, if that would become, if you would become my obsession? That I'd wake up in the morning and you would be on my mind. What would happen if all throughout the day you would be my one delight? What would happen, Jesus, if I went to bed dreaming about you? What would happen, Jesus, if I would allow you to have, to have access to do whatever you wanted in and through my life? What would it look like if I could so throw myself and surrender at your feet to just say, hey, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee? Lord, what would it look like if, if you could just have a willing vessel to spill and to spend however you choose? And Lord, I wouldn't get wrapped up in the activities because it's not so much about the activity that you're doing as much as it is about you. And yes, there may be a calling, and yes, there may be, hey, I may be called to preach, and yes, I may be called to be a missionary, or yes, hey, I may be called to be an electrician, or yes, I may be whatever. That's true, Jesus. But what if in the midst of those kind of callings, you would be the calling? And that you would leverage the electrician thing for your sake, so that every house that I would bang on, that you would just somehow showcase yourself through my life and my thoughts and my actions and my words. See, Lord, what would happen if, yes, if my calling was teaching, but somehow you could showcase yourself where it's not so much the teaching, it's you, and in the midst of the teaching, you would showcase yourself. So, Lord, would you somehow leverage my life 
not so much for the activities as much as it is for the person. Lord, would you let me get wrapped up in you? Would you somehow just let me see you clearly? Somehow, Jesus, could you, would you let me just get smack dab in the middle of who you are? Hey, would you form your mind within me? Would you take your heart and, and exchange it for mine? Jesus, would you, would you take your attitude and, and the way that you talk and the way that you lived and would you, would you sanctify my life and make and shape me more and more and more like you? Lord, it seems like you have one single agenda for my life. And it's that you would be the agenda. So, Lord, I just want to respond this morning and just say, have at it. That, hey, I don't want to dictate the terms. I, I, I don't want to determine. I don't want to, you know, press my own desire. I want you. I want you to do it, Jesus. I want you to be everything in my life. And then somehow could you leverage me and my willingness and my surrender for whatever purpose you have. And whether that's seen or not seen, whether that moves and changes nations or whether it doesn't seem to have any effect at all, or if I would find myself smack dab in the middle of you, then I can have confidence and trust that the will of God is being accomplished in my life. Lord, we love you. Well, thanks for listening to this episode of the Deeper Christian Podcast. I hope this message not only encouraged you to press in all the more, but to fully give yourself to Jesus as you build your life around him. As a reminder, the show notes of this episode, including an outline and links to other resources and articles, can be found at deeperchristian.com forward slash 28 for episode number 28. Now, join me next time as we discuss four reasons why you need a spiritual mentor. And until then, know I am cheering you on as you build your life around Jesus Christ.